This is part three. It consists of two parts. One, I will describe the Marilla Community Center. And finally, I'll have a concluding section. Now, the community center is the third in the five-tier system of commercial centers envisaged in the master plan of Delhi. It is expected to serve a population of, of 100,000 and is allocated about 5.4 hectares of land. It provides for a variety of functions, formal shopping, informal shopping, commercial offices, cinema, hotel, guest houses, nursing home, service industries, for example, automobile maintenance shops, etc., post offices, dispensary, petrol pumps, weekly markets, electric substations, and other functional amenities and conveniences. The overall development is limited to a floor area ratio of 100 and a ground coverage of 25%. The area allocated for the Narela Community Center was 6.5 hectares, and therefore the total built-up area to be designed was 65,000 square meters. According to the bylaws, space for about 825 cars was to be provided. My starting point was the major lessons from the experience of earlier community center projects in which it is well known that the prescriptions and proscriptions of the designers seldom materialized. The functions assigned to the community center or other in the others in the hierarchy for that matter get established in adjacent residential areas before the community center is even built. Shops, offices, nursing homes, guest houses, and even service facilities come up illegally in other areas because the community center site is developed several years, even decades, after the res residents move in and settle down in their homes. They also function more conveniently and cost less to set up in residential areas because this follows a natural propensity of organic urban development, which puts to question the very concept of the segregated land uses and the rigid planning norms that require to be followed in accordance to the master plan to make buildings legal. It should appear from this perspective that the Delhi master plan almost encourages illegal development. The master plan therefore imposes an a priori infirmity on the designer of any community center since many of the intended functions have already come up elsewhere and only the larger functions like a hotel, cinema and petrol pump are actually required to be provided. The other facilities provided in the community center therefore actually serve service the needs of a larger city level hinterland. <clears throat> when constructed in accordance with the dictates of the master plan, the nomenclature community center is a misnomer. It hardly serves the local community and the anticipated savings in the volume of travel between home and work workplaces never materializes. And in locations like Narela at the northern edge of the city, about 35 kilometers from the central business district of Connaught Place, the problems are further compounded due to its inaccessibility and the current lower middle class economic profile of the local community. The rigid requirements defined in the master plan suit a much more prosperous and mobile community than the one that currently resides in Narela and the situation will not change in the foreseeable future.
Of course, these circumstances will eventually change. But for the present, the needs of the catchment area of the centre are quite different from the standards prescribed by the master plan. A major freight terminal with extensive warehousing facilities and service centres are planned and coming up nearby. These major city-level functions will impose their own demands on the locality and the community centre at Narela. Taking all these factors into account, it was clear that the community centre at Narela should have a different architecture programme and flexible design strategy. But such an approach goes against the expectations of DDA. Regardless of the local context, they expect all architects to follow the same guidelines which have been enshrined in the master plan. And this is accomplished by means of drawing up an explicitly defined land use plan. The rule of law prescribed by the master plan is sacrosanct and is the sole criteria to approve the designs produced by architects. Thereafter, the architect is expected to formulate restrictive covenants in the form of controlled elevations for the buildings in the community centre. In almost every instance, these expectations translate to reproducing the typology of the place and the aesthetic image of the international style. This procedure of form making and space making is by now well established and both the architect and the DDA are aligned in their respective intents and therefore operate on the same wavelengths. The rigid designs that result for this, process, for, for this process inevitably get transformed after construction and the entire drama of transformation unfolds like a Greek tragedy. The design expectations are also standardized that, that the imperatives of creativity are restricted to rearranging the familiar architectural and aesthetic vocabulary. This process of architectural design for the community center on formal approval becomes a legal document. It defines the restrictive co covenants for the new use and construction of the individual plots, which are auctioned to different developers to build over time. Often decades later, architects who get these prestigious commissions endeavor to conform to the expectation of the DDA and thereby address the aura associated with the master plan projects. One can easily see how in the process, both the architect and DDA address extraneous issues of architectural image and not the actual problems at hand. The imperatives of planned development as understood by DDA and the rigidity of the rule of law reinforce each other to disregard the contingent reality of the locality. This is the post-colonial framework of architectural practice that determines the nature of architecture and urbanism that gets built. The focus of my attention on getting this commission was this characteristic and the objective of my design to endeavor to overcome it. I therefore worked out a flexible strategy of design with only minimal restrictive covenants to primarily address the requirements of public convenience and safety and not the aesthetic principles of architectural modernism. Basically, my proposal can be described as a development strategy not a design as DJ would have defined it. It left room for contingent changes to take place during the course of development. I felt that this would be a more appropriate architectural and planning response to meet the evolutionary conditions that prevailed at that site because it would permit changes 
to be undertaken by the owners of these buildings in future to meet the emerging demands of the community over time. Using the persuasive forces of analytical evidence, I was able to persuade the DDA architects overseeing my project on the virtues of my development proposal, but not their superiors, the apex authority known as the technical committee. The administrative members of the technical committee are senior bureaucrats, many drawn from the Indian administrative service and some engineers. So certain are they of their knowledge of architecture and urban planning that confronted with apostasy, they thought it best to offer me design lessons as to, as to a wayward child. My proposals for flexibility in design was dismissed because they explained that DDA cannot give up its right to dictate land use and determine the aesthetics of the buildings in the community center in order to achieve orderly development. They also suggested that I include a few high-rise buildings, I had not proposed any, to improve the aesthetics of the project. Neither the architect members of the technical committee who had earlier approved my design development strategy, nor I were able to persuade the others in this committee of the appropriateness of my proposal. Dialogue such as it was broke down during the course of the defense of my proposal because they took umbrage at the architect the supplicant answering back, they rejected the scheme. I am describing this incident at some length to illustrate the problems of space making and form making in a post-colonial situation. This was of course a government-sponsored project, but a similar power equation defines all post-independence patron-architect relationship to varying degrees. The incident took place in 1997, but could well have taken place before 1947 or indeed after 2017. It highlights the defining framework of professional practice in Delhi, where the architect and the urban planners are low-level functionaries in the hierarchy of decision-making in government-sponsored projects and invariably have to accede to the decisive role of the engineers and bureaucrats. These conditions spill over to determine the nature of projects outside the government fold as well because Delhi has been, until recently, dominated by state patronage, reference 22. It is little wonder that architects feel that they are marginal to the process of development taking place in society. In the profession, these are well-known facts, indeed so well-known that it is seldom mentioned or contested, never theorized. DDA, as an official agency of the government, prefers to work in controlled environments for reasons of consistency. They rejected my scheme because the system cannot approve a strategy of ad hocism or letting matters take their own course. But they could not understand that the crucial difference between their perceptions and mine was that I had proposed an overall structure that ensured control of important issues that would determine its efficient functioning. At each stage of the seemingly ad hoc development, there would be references to the whole. The predetermined morphology and service system was carefully designed to ensure public welfare even as individual developers were given free reign to design the individual buildings. Hence, as a strategy, the development I had proposed was not entirely left to chance, nor was it completely deterministic. It was characterized by partial autonomy and partial dependence. 
Nevertheless, the DDA Technical Committee could not accept the absence of absolute control. In the face of the obduracy, I compromised on some of the out points uh, they pointed out. The project was too important for my small practice to abandon. But I was able to clarify during the subsequent discussions the realism of the scheme and I stuck to the underpinning logic of my strategy. The negotiated design as it was subsequently approved does not specify minimal does specify minimal controls pertaining to the bulk of the building and the alternative restrictive covenants in the form of different elevations which could be permissible for individual buildings. But it does not define the specific land use of a particular parcel of land as required in the master plan. And only the location of the hotel, cinema, petrol pump and infrastructure services have been specified. Except for the hotel, there are also no high-rise buildings. I expect that the market forces will decide the function of each building and the owners will construct any kind of elevation they like. The typology of my proposal derived, derives from the bazaar. It, perhaps, self-consciously attempts to emulate the picturesque by permitting organic expression of the building's looks and abjuring the aesthetics of the international style. This is expected to produce a lack of aesthetic order, but I explained to DDA that this would be no different from what actually gets built in any case, with or without restrictive covenants. It would also be better on several counts. For one, it removes the stigma, stigma of illegality that enables municipal regulators to milk the hapless owners who deviate from the prescribed restrictive covenants. And for another, it directs the focus of the municipal governance on essential aspects of public health, safety, and infrastructure facilities, which are its important and only domain. The project still has a long way to go before breaking ground. In the meantime, the local conditions will change, but I hope that the flexible design strategy I proposed and the DDA finally accepted will cope with the new demands that will be imposed on the community center over time. Can this be considered the fourth stage of modernizing of the modernizing typology of shopping complexes in Delhi? Now, my conclusions and afterward. But is this architecture? Perhaps not according to the expectations which have been defined in the works of post-independence architects. As I explained, much of modernism as it unfolded in Delhi has proved to have been simplistic and misguided. Its obsession with image as the aesthetic manifestation of modernity reduced it to an exercise in dilantism, far removed from the concerns of society. In the West, the issue of modernism was all along not the latest expression of its image, but the formulation of systems of or frameworks for architectural development that would incorporate the lifestyles and expectations of the user. But in India, the expectations of the uh, user is difficult to define. The user, the modernizing urbanite, has eclectic and even idiosyncratic tastes and preferences. Sociologist Dipakar Gupta describes them as vextoxicated, that is, partly modern, partly tradition, traditional, and wholly hybrid, reference 23. 
they invariably modify any modern architectural or spatial design to suit their particular requirements and preferences. And in an evolving society, this is to be expected. Frederick Jameson refers to these conditions of the bazaar as dirty realism, in which the pre-capitalistic modes of production are somehow able to infuse and supplement the spatial needs of late capitalism. Reference to Depot. The mediating role of the contemporary designer is to ensure that their modern intents incorporates the changing values of a still urbanizing society and that this is accomplished by ensuring public convenience, health and safety. This is a strategy for working in the enunciated present which designers must negotiate the hybrid image of the building. The role does not end after the design is completed on paper, but begins when construction starts at site. The questions that have been raised in my lecture refers by and large to moral critiques of modernism and architecture as art. I have attempted to undertake this critique by examining the evolution of modernism in architecture of shopping centers. No doubt, it is a small sample of architectural production but it is representative of the larger field in architecture and urbanism as well, and perhaps is even indicative of the developments which have taken place in the rest of the country. At all levels, it raises fundamental questions about the meaning of modernism in the Indian context. If, as Daniel Bell pointed out, modernism was characterized by a disruptive agnosticism, reference 25, then one has to question the association of that term with the architecture and urbanism in India. Going by the evidence I have presented, no such disruption marked the emergence of the square, the place, or the shopping mall typology in the urbanscape of Delhi. Its adoption merely signaled that the local professional continu professionals' continuing familiarity with developments taking place in the West and the lack of familiarity with the local context. There appears to be no relationship between the evolution of artisan styles and the conditions in society or the state of the culture of building. Howard Davis defines the culture of building as the coordinated system of knowledge, rules, procedures, and habits that surrounds the building process, embedded in a recognizable web of human relationships between many participants, contractors, craftspeople, clients, building users, architects, building officials, bankers, material suppliers, surveyors, building appraisers, real estate brokers, manufacturers. He points out that this web of relationships is characterized by the predictable ways people carry out their jobs and the predictable ways they deal with each other, reference 26. The post-colonial reading I have offered of the development of architecture and urbanism in Delhi has linked the origins of these predictable relationships to the colonial period and suggested that they have continued to determine the post-independence culture of building. Of course, the tenacious hold of the colonial past on the post-colonial present is not revolutionary. Both Albert Memmi and Edward Said have already explained why the colonial aftermath does not yield the end of colonialism reference 27. 
I have here, here only attempted to explain its consequences on form making and place making in Delhi and point out its relationship with the conditions prevailing in the built environment. My story of the community center at Narela provided a small vignette of how the power and autonomy of economic and administrative systems put in place to address colonial imperatives have conflated with the modernist ideals of architects and urban planners to contribute to the problems of our cities. I have also presented the subversive potential of engaging with the enunciated present as a mitigating design strategy. But where does this take us from here? From there, will the architecture we produce or the urban spaces we create by pursuing subversive strategy result in more livable cities? We will have to wait and see about that. But in the meantime, it will certainly be more effective strategy to manage the changes taking place in the built environment. The new approaches I'm advocating will look at architecture as the incremental contingent subversion of status quo affected through a discourse between the modernist ideals, even the important ones, and the imperfect local contexts. It suggests that no one perspective will suffice for interpretation in the contemporary built environment and architects and urban planners will have to consider several perspectives in order to formulate appropriate strategies for form making and place making. The hybrid conditions prevailing in society are a result of what Arjun Apwadurai calls the deep and multiple genealogies that have frustrated the aspirations of modernizers in very different societies to synchronize their historical watches. Reference 28. These genealogies reflect the multiple origins of modernism and have mediated the development of architecture in Delhi and India. It necessitates the adoption of hybrid frameworks of practice and the redefinition of the Western concept of modernism as well. <laughs> the design strategy for the Narela Community Center was an attempt to explore the potentials of such a, pra a speculative praxis. And that's the end of my lecture. Thank you. Uh, I will try and send you all the references later, but that is the le lecture on architecture in contemporary Delhi.